0: You're listening to Houston, we have a podcast where we talk everything and anything, movies and their reviews, and this is episode 9. Hey everybody, Show here. Welcome to Houston, we have a podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. Houston We Have a Podcast is produced every two weeks for your enjoyment, and show notes can be found at houstonwehaveapodcast.libsyn, which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite feed or on iTunes, and you can follow me on Twitter at S-N-S-A-L-L-I. That's S N S Allie
1: The 2012 nominees for Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role are Sally Field in Lincoln, Anne Hathaway in Les Miserables. Jackie Weaver in Silver Linings Playbook. Helen Hunt in The Sessions. And Amy Adams in The Master. Congratulations, you five ladies no longer have to pretend to be attracted to Harvey Weinstein.
0: In movie news this week, I feel like there is a major news story that has to be talked about. Harvey Weinstein and the sexual assault and harassment allegations. And I almost feel bad for saying allegations because at this point, it's almost 100% true that this horrible human being did all of these things. And so many actresses have come out and said their accounts of what have happened to them over the years. Lupita Nyong'o, I believe, was the m- most recent one I saw today who said that Harvey Weinstein cornered her, you know, privately and made unwanted advances. And I just, I, I can't really say more than what's already been said. I obviously everyone should condemn this in the strongest possible way. It's disgusting what he da- has done. And, if, and certainly I should say that it's not just limited to Harvey Weinstein. It's possible his brother is involved. You know, we don't, I, I'm not hundred percent certain on that. But I would not be shocked considering all the, the news has come out. And the truth is, Hollywood is an industry where this kind of thing has been known and covered up for years. I mean, we played that intro clip of Seth MacFarlane. That was, a what, five years ago at the Oscars? And he made this kind of flippant joke and everyone laughed because they all knew it was true. That's not a good look for Hollywood and it's not a good look for the men who knew about this and stayed silent because they didn't want their careers to be harmed. Now, of course, sure. Yes. You could say the same thing for women who stayed silent over the years because they didn't want their careers to be harmed, but they were the ones who were being sexually harassed and assaulted. I can never find any fault with those people. Victims of abuse and assault and harassment and all these horrible things are constantly being pressured not by the perpetrators i mean cer- certainly by them but not just by the perpetrators i should say but are also being pressured by their peers and by their you know their colleagues and their friends and their family you know like if, if someone doesn't say anything and they hear a rumor the rumor is, that what, what's being said about this woman now is oh well then if if it really happened she would have spoken up and then if she de- if she does speak up they'll say oh I've never seen Harvey do that. Like that—that's crazy talk. And then if she comes out even stronger, they say, "Oh well, you know what was she wearing? What was she asking for?" I don't know. It's a mess. It is a horrible mess. Not because of the chaos it has created. It doesn't really matter how much how many people go down because of this. If if someone does has done this, they need to go down. Definitely. Not saying anything to the, to the otherwise, right? But ah, oh, it just it breaks my heart to know that all this happens, and of course that hashtag me too became a thing and even this not just limited certainly to famous women in hollywood there are friends of friends of mine who maybe listen to the podcast maybe don't but people i'm close to who have come out and said hey yes i've also endured sexual assault and sexual harassment and i've kept quiet about it because i've been ashamed and i don't know it's a horrible thing to go through and i feel like i can't really add any more cogent thoughts than other than to say this is horrible. People who do this need to be exposed and brought down and if I can do anything to help whether it's my friends whether it's other people I will do everything in my power as much as as much or as little as it may be but that kind of thing has no place in our society. And frankly, it's terrible that it takes something like this for even someone like me to make such a strong statement, right? If you knew this is happening before, it shouldn't have taken this long to make a statement like that. So that is definitely on me. I wish I had done something sooner, even if it was something as small as lending a, a more listening ear to my own friends. And to my friends, if you do listen to this, I do sincerely hope that, you know, you can you feel that you can tell me that I, that I would believe you if, if I have not done that, or if I've ever made you feel otherwise, and I sincerely apologize, and I will do everything in my power, like I said, to rectify that going forward. Because as much as I would like to change the past, I unfortunately cannot. But I would, I would do it if I could. I would, and I don't know. I feel like with such a heavy topic, I don't necessarily want to cheapen it by adding other movie news to the beginning of the podcast because the harvey weinstein thing is that bad it's that bad and even though like i said it's not just limited to him he is the forefront and the face for this right now and i hope that he continues to be he was expelled from the academy that's notable of course and i don't know i just think it would cheapen and lessen the impact of talking about something like that if we were to talk about something flippant like the star wars trailer or something right so we'll cover that another time but just know that to the victims of abuse and harassment and assault you don't need to be silent though that is of course you're right if you don't feel comfortable sharing never let anyone force you into sharing there is of course some a, a strange performative aspect to this whole me too thing right and uh, whereas you should feel safe to confide in your friends and to make statements like that if you want to but if a woman does not make such a statement then it doesn't mean that hasn't happened right it just means they haven't made a statement about it. Some people it might be too painful. It might be uncomfortable. It, there's, we, we shouldn't have to drag it out of people. If you want to share, you share. And if you don't want to, you certainly are not obligated to. But just know that everyone is aware. And at least, like I said, for the people who I can affect directly, I hope that I can lend a willing ear going forward. I do still want to talk some movie reviews today, so let's get into the reviews. We'll leave the news segment behind. We'll think about it some more. Maybe we'll come back and talk about it again next week, you know, see what more news has bubbled up around it, because it's a very important subject, but we'll put that aside for now, and we'll focus on our first movie. So without further ado, I think one of my favorite movies I've seen this year, and I've seen it with... A very good friend of mine. So, again, without further ado, Blade Runner 2049. We're
1: drinking, my friend, to the end of a brief episode. Make it one for my babe and one more for the road.
0: Okay, if you're wondering why Frank Sinatra is greeting you as the review segment for Blade Runner 2049 is starting, I will say it's warranted. I picked the song because it was a nice change of pace from our usual intro music for the segments. And, you know, secondly, Frank Sinatra is awesome and he has a beautiful, gorgeous, haunting, hauntingly awesome voice. But I guess I just wanted to do something a little different. But I will say it is in the movie. This song is in the movie. You'll you'll know when you see it. It's not kind of over like covertly playing. It's very much front and center when it does play. So, there is a reason for this. And so there is a method to the madness. But we'll get to the movie, Blade Runner 2049 directed by Denis Villeneuve. He's probably one of the better, you know, directors in Hollywood right now. I hesitate to say that thing from Zoolander where Mugatu says, "Oh, so hot right now." You know, that's what I kind of think of when I think of Denis Villeneuve, but you know, he's an excellent director. And I think Blade Runner 2049 has officially won me over. Now, I was a big fan after Sicario and Arrival, but Blade Runner, I feel like, is one of those cult classic movies that needs to be done correctly in order to keep its fan base but also to win new ones over. And I think Blade Runner 2049 may very well be his best movie yet, which is saying something considering how good his other movies have been. So I'll say this, the movie is very slow. It's two hours and 43 minutes long, but that is appropriate considering it's an homage to the first movie. You know, it's a film noir, a gritty, slow burn of a watch for the audience. There's not a lot of dialogue, a lot of long, moody shots with kind of drone-like music. They definitely sample the music from the first movie, and Hans Zimmer does a fantastic job kind of continuing that feel that the first movie really evoked in you. And, and it's it's not just the music, of course. It's the visuals combined with the music. You can't really have one without the other. And I'll start with the cinematography because it's just absolutely gorgeous. Like I said, slow, moody shots, a lot of amazing use of colors. Roger Deakins is the director of cinematography slash photography for this movie. And I can, you know, close my eyes and guess that he's going to guess... be getting a nomination for an Oscar for this movie. Though it's hard to say he'll actually win after so many years of having not won one, but he's also, of course, going up against Dunkirk this year. But you know what? If he were to win for any of his movies after Skyfall, this one is the one I think he deserves to win for. It is just an absolutely gorgeous movie. When we see Ryan Gosling's character, Officer K, when we see him waltz into Las Vegas for the first time, you know, it's such a fantastic... Setting, we see kind of it's it's this the, one of the shots from the trailer slash one of the posters. You see kind of Ryan Gosling's back as he's holding his gun and walking kind of like to the side into this orange kind of desert. It's fantastic to watch. I love. I I I've seen this movie three times now, and every time I watch it, again the thing I want to focus on are just the sights: the neon contrasted with the black, the orange and the blue, the the dark and the lights. The, the shadows in the characters' faces, the moving light as we go into the Wallace Foundation. It's all so fantastic to see. It's just a brilliantly shot movie, and I, I love it. So we'll talk a little bit about the plot very briefly. Obviously, it takes place in the year 2049. The world has changed from what it used to be when Deckard was the Blade Runner that we followed. So the Blade Runners, of course, are officers of the LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, that hunt down replicants, rogue replicants. Now, in... The original movie, Deckert was the Blade Runner, and he was hunting down replicants that had flee that had fled from a penal colony of sorts, I believe, and they were, you know, capable of violence. They were capable of not obeying. And he was sent to retire them, to kill them, because, you know, he was afraid they would be killing humans. In the world we see this movie take place in in 2049, and there's a bit of a title card where the kind of text introduce you to the world. We learn that the Tyrell Corporation and Tyrell, of course, is the creator of the replicants. It had been shut down after all of the violent rebellions with the replicants. And later on, it was subsequently bought by the Wallace Foundation, which I mentioned, in the name of reviving the replicant program to have ones that obey instead of going off on their own and doing their own things, right? And so, the, and Neander Wallace, who is, I guess, the main overarching villain of the movie, is played by Jared Leto. And he's this blind visionary, which, of course, is kind of an oxymoron. And his goal is to be able to make his replicants procreate because then he can have a kind of disposable workforce. He can make them do whatever he wants. He is the villain of the movie. And the idea of procreation pertaining to how that makes one human is a a central theme of this movie. And to go forward on that, I guess that idea of what it means to be human is something that the movie tackles a lot and in a very heavy way. And, of course, that's the message of the first movie with Harrison Ford, but the difference here is that we learn at the very, very beginning of the movie that Ryan Gosling's character, Officer K, is a replicant from the very beginning. We know he's a replicant. He's one of the new models, quote-unquote, one that obeys and is a police officer for the LAPD and he begins to question his existence as a replicant and begins to wonder if he may in fact be human and of course one of the major choices in the in the first movie when when Harrison Ford first made Blade Runner with Ridley Scott a big a big part of it was is Deckard really a replicant because we assume he's human and then we learn later on that potentially he's a replicant and of course they leave it kind of ambiguous and I'll say now that's not. A, if you want answers to that question, is Deckard a replicant? You're not going to know now. You have to watch the movie, and even when the movie is done, you're not going to know because Deckard. I mean, he's not the main character of this movie, and they kind of tease you a little bit. We they bring back Edward James Olmos for a little bit. That was pretty cool for a single scene. You know, we they they tease you with the idea that. Deckard is a real or not real even Wallace himself doesn't know and you think he would because he owns the Tyrell Corporation who would I, uh, I I would imagine have records of you know Deckard being a replicant if he is one but you know what they leave it open-ended and I like it that way and I think a lot of people will so there's a lot of interesting choices made in the movie that speak to what does it mean to be human but not just for Kay but for us as well the audience right that one, one thing they posit is that they say to have K's dilemma because he does, in fact, have memories, right? So to have memories is to feel emotion. And and to feel emotion and to have feelings and to have memories that evoke things in you, that is part of what makes one human. And, of course, that's part of Kay's problem, which I was saying, because he has memories, he's just not sure if they're his. Now, one of the more interesting parts of this pro- of this movie— I'm kind of going all over the place here, but— it's it's hard to kind of stay on one thread and i know i do that a lot in the in these movie reviews but for blade runner 2049 specifically there's so many things that are intertwined a lot of the characters even if they don't interact with one another have interesting dialogue choices or a- make, make different choices with their action that relate to one another even if they have never met and and it's interesting because all of it all of it is about what does it mean to be real what does it mean to be human is to be human, to be real? Is it? Are, can you be real if you're not human? Do you, you? Is that? What does that mean to each individual person? Right. So, Kay, Ryan Gosling's character, he has kind of a personal bot of sorts. I believe her name is is Joy, uh, J O I, and it's kind of a hologram, a program that people can buy and customize to their liking via their appearance and their personality, and and he treats it. As his companion, his girlfriend, his wife, whatever you want to call it. At the end of the day, she is just a program and she behaves like one in terms of being able to have, have been shut down, you know, with the touch of a button. But she is perhaps the only thing in the movie that makes Case smile at any point other than the movie's final scene. And there's a fascinating part of the movie, and I would be remiss if I did not mention this, where... Where she projects herself over a prostitute she hires for Kay, so he can experience what it would be like to be with her in a you know, quote unquote real sense. She kind of so the prostitute arrives, she kind of stands still while Joy kind of steps over her, so her her kind of projection can follow the prostitute's movement. So when Kay looks at her, he sees the pro—he sees uh rather joy instead of the prostitute. And I think that's such a fascinating idea. It, it, it has some of, that scene has some of the best visuals in the whole movie because you know there's a scene where the prostitute holds Kay and they make out and she kind of holds his face like I, I guess as you do when you make out and. We see the the camera is looking at it from behind K, so it's like, it's as if we, the audience, are standing behind Ryan Gosling, watch watching this woman and the prostitute is played by Mackenzie Davis, while Joy is played by Anna Dearmas. and we kind of see M- Mackenzie Davis' hands on the back of Ryan Gosling's head, kind of running through his hair, and then we see Anna Diarmas's hands also doing the same thing. So I'm interested to, to know how they filmed that. Probably they just filmed the scene twice and superimposed one over the other. I mean, that sounds very simple. I'm sure it's not quite that simple in execution and in, you know, editing in the editing room and whatnot. But at the same time, that's probably what they did in a in a kind of layman's term sense if I had to guess at the least. But it's interesting because it has so many really cool visuals and and the idea cuz Anna de Armas is is kind of transparently shown throughout the whole movie because she is in like when you boil it down, a hologram of sorts that can kind of move through and around things while Mackenzie Davis's character is real, right? Now, the interesting part of this scene is not just the visuals, but it's the fact that the prostitute herself is a replicant. So in a way, the whole scene is just an illusion because, like, like her character, like Joy's character, but it's, it's quite real to Kay, and as we think at that point in the movie, he is a replicant himself. And, it, and that, I think, scene distills the idea of the movie tackling what is real and what is not real, down to its core because the very idea of of you know realness is one that's different to different people and and beings right it's real for joy the projection hologram thing it's real for the replicant prostitute and it's real for k and all of them are artificial creations at the same time there's a scene kind of afterwards after k has slept with her and she wakes up in her in his bed and stuff then the prostitute says to joy they're kind of talking to each other without k there and The prostitute says to Joy, there's not as much... I've been inside of you. There's not as much going on up there as you think. And that's such an interesting diss because she's not any more or less real, even though she feels that, you know, even if she is a replicant and this girl... Joy is just a program of sorts. You know, maybe she's a more complicated machine, but you know, she is a machine as well. I find that so fascinating. And you would, you would have to think if you kind of follow this idea down the rabbit hole a little bit that the humans who hire her for sex, who hire Mackenzie Davis's character for sex, probably say the same thing to her, you know. I've been inside of you. There's not much going up on on there as you think, thinking that she, the prostitute is, you know, quote unquote less than and then Davis's character goes on to say that right back to joy, right? It's such a fascinating idea. And I think that that's something that can be maybe extrapolated from, you know, to a variety of situations, you know, uh, straight people and gay people, white people and black people, men and women You know, there are a lot of interesting ways to read that conversation. But of course, if you want to just read it in the world of the movie, the idea that this kind of higher functioning artificial creation is saying it to a lesser functioning artificial creation. I don't know. It's a fascinating, fascinating scene. And it really gets down to the idea of what is real and what is not real. Right. So moving on, and I'm trying not to spoil a lot of things about this movie because it's such a it's such a film that requires you to stop and think, and I saw this movie three times, and there are still things I'm thinking, now that I'm writing down all my thoughts here, there are still things I think to myself and go, oh yeah, you know, that sounds really... Cool. That is something I didn't think about the first time. I even made some notes, and people are probably sitting there in the movie theater thinking, who is this guy? Is he like an actual movie critic? Which, obviously, I'm not. But, you know, the movie is so dense that I feel like I had to make notes in order to remember all of the interesting things. And we, we're not going to get to all of them, because I don't want to spoil the whole movie, but just some things to think about when you go see the movie, if you do. And we'll go to the we'll go to the ending of the movie. Now, Kay, uh, knowing his fate, right, and, and, I'll, and I, knowing that what he is, a replicant. He holds his hand out and he feels the snow, the real snow falling from the sky. And then it cuts to a real woman after that, holding her hand out and feeling the simulated snow fall onto her hand. And I think that's one of the best visual examples in the movie of what it means to be human. Because Kay, a replicant, can actually feel and interact with the snow, while a living real being, you know, real quote-unquote being, cannot because she is being confined. So that's another great kind of reading of what it means to be a person, what it means to be human, what it means to be real. And if we take it even further, I think one of the coolest things, and I think this is, I think, the the thought I'm going to end on in terms of the various ruminations for this movie. But I think one of the coolest things about Blade Runner 2049 is that even once both we, the audience, and Kay, the character, realize that he is not, in fact, the chosen one, that he is, in fact, a replicant, k still chooses to go and save deckard at the end he didn't have to right there was nothing in it for him he knows at that point that he is not special he is not the child of a replicant he's not a real boy you know he is just pinocchio a wooden puppet he's not you know a real boy right but by him choosing to go and save deckard by him making that choice and to, to go do something that might potentially result in his own death, that makes him special. That is what makes him special, and in doing so, that is probably the most human thing anyone, real or not, can do. And that is certainly the most human thing that anyone does in that movie, certainly, right? So that is what makes Kay an interesting character, because his choices, his free will, those are the things that make you human. Not how you were born, not... You know your 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 creation, your, your where you come from, but it's those things that what make you human. And of course, those are things that are essential to the debate of artificial intelligence over the years in any media, movies, TVs, books, you know, Isaac Asimov tackles this question, any number of things have tackled that idea. And I think they sum it up in a very eloquent way with Kay and his choices at the end of the movie. it's It's really cool, and I just think they do it in such a tactful. Nice way that you feel like you've learned something about maybe even yourself, right? Because you think about your own own, your own choices you've made in life, and you know, does that make you human? I don't know. I mean, we're obviously all human unless we're all in the Matrix or something. But at the same time, it's just an interesting take on choices and free will and how that contributes to the idea of humanity. And even if you want to get away from humanity, but the idea of realness, like I mentioned, of course. So. They, they also, and I think I mentioned this already, but they leave the question regarding Deckard being a replicant up in the air, which I think is really cool. It, it's really up to you, the audience member, to decide on that. And I don't really think either viewpoint, he is or he is not a replicant, is necessarily wrong. And actually, I will, one last actual point. It's not really about this movie, but actually about the original. There's a great scene in, in this one, in 2049, where Kay and Deckard meet for the first time. And Deckard is suspicious. He thinks he's coming to kill him. So Deckard, you know, fires a pistol, and they kind of do this cat and mouse game through the shadowy building. And Deckard is kind of hunting Kay throughout this building, who is a replicant. And it's clearly reminiscent, and obviously Denis Villeneuve, and directors don't do anything on it by accident, but it's clearly reminiscent and deliberately made to evoke images of the ending of the first movie, where Deckard is hunting Roy, the last replicant remaining. Of course, the major difference is that Deckard wasn't trying to, you know, or, or I should let me take that back. The major difference is that Kay wasn't trying to kill Deckard in their little cat and mouse game. He just wanted to talk to him. But there's such an interesting kind of there there are a lot of great callbacks. Even in the first one, if you remember, there's a point where I think Deckard is, is uh interrogating, you know, they do the kind of baseline tests to prove if you're a, you know, human or a replicant. And there's a point where um, Deckard, one of the questions he asks is, you know, a wasp or a bee, a bee lands on your hand, what do you do? And Rachel replies immediately, I kill it. And I guess that's one of the questions that implies that she is a replicant, and we know she is, right? But there's a scene in this movie, and I appreciate that they did not explain this over... They didn't over-explain it. I should say they, had, they and they definitely—they actually replayed part of the conversation in an audio form of Ra- uh, Deckard's interview of Rachel from the first movie. And they say the whole, you know, there's a bee landing on your hand. What do you do? I kill it. That plays. So you're kind of thinking about it when this scene happens. And the scene I'm talking about is Kay. Kind of, he's wa- wandering into the ruined city of Las Vegas. And I'll get back. I'll get to that in a second. But he he wanders into the city and he sees some beehives and the bees are kind of uh, kind of spinning around. And um, buzzing around, spinning, bees don't spin. What am I saying? But, you know, they're buzzing around and a bee lands on his hand, and he kind of looks at it and, then it and then it flies away. And And I think if you're paying attention to the dialogue saying that, I think, is one of the greatest parts of the movie that imply that he, even if he is a replicant, that he is real. Right. Because the test for the, or the older replicants, the Nexus 8s, as they're called, those are the, you know, they would immediately kill it. And so you kind of think to yourself, oh, well, he didn't kill that bee, so he clearly is real. And even though that does not end up being the case, it's really cool to see that the idea of, again, and I re- I've repeated this so many times, but again, the idea of what is real and what is not real has changed from the original. It, it's just another examination of intelligence and humanity and realness and that kind of thing, Right. And to go back to that Las Vegas thing, just really quickly, one of the last great things this movie does is the continual idea of world building. We meet um, this character named Dr. Badger who can get, like, horses and goats and off-world papers, and we hear about the nine worlds that... Wallace has enabled the humanity to reach and we you know know that he has a secret base off world where he can like torture people I guess because he's he's super rich and we learned that I guess one point a one point in time a dirty bomb which is I guess like a radiation bomb without the actual like physical explosion was set off in Las Vegas so no one lives in Las Vegas anymore there's a lot of radiation there although it's dissipated over time and that's where Deckard has chosen to make his home because no one would go there of course and it's so interesting because you know, what What happened that led to a dirty bomb being detonated in Las Vegas? Like, everyone knows about it, but they don't talk about it. And I think that's one of the coolest things about the movie as well. And, and in addition to the philosophical ideas is the world building, you know, there's so many stories that could be told in the, in the world of Blade Runner 2049. And that was the case back in the 80s or whatever, when the first movie by Ridley Scott was made. And I really hope they don't make a sequel to this movie, I'll say, because... To overexplain things, like I mentioned already, is not great, and I think movies can do with more of leaving things to the imagination. And Denis Villeneuve has done a fabulous, masterful job with Blade Runner. I would be shocked if this movie did not get nominated for multiple Oscars: sound mixing, sound editing, cinematography, set design, production design. You know, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't necessarily be completely shocked if there was a few acting nominations in there. I, I, I don't think they'd win, but some nominations for maybe Ryan Gosling. And hey, if Sylvester Stallone can get nominated for Creed, there's no reason why Harrison Ford, who puts in probably one of the best performances of his career, definitely of the last like 10, 15 years, probably since Air Force One or The Fugitive, you know, he definitely did not mail it in, so I could see him getting a kind of token nomination a la Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, uh, Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder, Sylvester Stallone in Creed, although he was a legitimate Oscar threat. He like, almost barely lost that award um, to Bridge of Spies, right? Anyway, so what I'm trying to say here is Blade Runner 2049 is awesome. It's a visual treat an oral treat as well, oral a u r a l in terms for your ears, not you know for your mouth, but still great treats. Visually, orally, and it's just, I think, if you're a fan of sci-fi, even the even though the length is two hours and forty-three minutes, if you're a fan of that kind of sci-fi with the that tackle the philosophical debates that have come up since Isaac Asimov has written all his books, then I think you should definitely see Blade Runner 2049. And now for something entirely different. <laughs> American Made is the next movie on our list, directed by Doug Lyman and Tom Cruise. We did something fun for the review this time, so let's get right into it. American Made. We're going to do something a little different for American Made. Instead of me talking by myself about what I liked, what I didn't like, I'm going to bring in a guest. Now, my next guest is a friend of mine, a co-worker, and he is a diehard Tom Cruise fan. So I thought, who better than to talk about one of the best Tom Cruise movies in years? Let's get him in here. So I am very happy to be joined now by Mark Goujon, co-host of the Rose to Rose podcast. So, Mark, you're fresh off an appearance on Bachelor Canada's, I guess, after show. That's right. Before we start, Mark, tell me a little bit about the Bachelor Canada appearance.
1: Uh, Well, we were technically, my friend Mike and I, who is my co-host, Right, we were super fans. So we were deemed super fans by the good people at W Network. And um, basically, we got to go and be pampered and have our clothes teamed and nice. do the makeup chair thing. And then we were on the after show and they asked us questions about The Bachelor Canada premiere and we answered them. And we used baseball puns because the bachelor right now is a former major league baseball player. Well, that's
0: player. right. I did I saw the commercial for that actually.
1: Yeah. He was like a relief pitcher. Right,
0: right. Yeah, you know, it's
1: nothing nothing too wild.
0: One of the radio spots I heard for that was something like this guy does is, doesn't just have a major league arm going for him. He also has a dog and surfs and yeah. stuff like that, right? So it sounded pretty. Uh, it sounded like a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, none of the viewers care that he's a major leaguer. <laughs> so if they say like he's got a dog, they're all like, "Ooh, okay, dog." I feel like you and I probably care more that he's a he was
0: a pitcher than most people. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I asked you to come on so we could talk a little bit about Tom Cruise and American Made. I'm so excited. You know, American Made was, I think, one of the better Tom Cruise movies I've seen in a while. But before we get to the actual movie, I think I was telling you before I wanted to talk a little bit about Tom Cruise's filmography, and it's it's pretty varied. I mean, it's a it's a very long it's a very long list. I'll say that. I saw I saw this fun fact. uh, Sarah Wright, who plays Lucy Seal in American Maid, she was born in September of 1983. And, and in August of 1983, Tom Cruise had already been in risky business, which, I mean, that doesn't seem that crazy, but uh, he, considering this woman plays his wife in American Maid, it kind of blows me away a You know what's bit. funny
1: is I thought she was even younger than you're saying. <laughs> I, th- I, would th- I thought she was like 23. She looks extremely young. Yeah. So, yeah, that so is that, wild. That, that
0: would make her, what, 30, in her late 30s, I guess.
1: Wow, yeah, I guess you're right. right.
0: Like she looks, you know, she does not look like she's in her late thirties. Let's say that. Although I'm sure the American maid went out of their way
1: to make her look even younger than she probably is, which is bizarre. Because why would you try to make the age difference more stark? Right? Yeah. Well, I thought that was an interesting tidbit to start a little
0: filmography talk with Tom Cruise because because he's been around forever. He right? has. So where where would you put? If you had to kind of do it off the top of your head, where would you put American Made in the Pantheon of Tom Cruise movies?
1: It's right there in the if you're gonna break it down into thirds usually right with anybody really you sure. know you've got the upper echelon, you've got their stuff that's fine, and then you've got the the garbage. This is somewhere right near the right near the top of the middle class. It's good, it's serviceable. I think if you look at it in terms of where he's been lately, okay, with his filmography then i would say this is like a home run.
0: Okay, that's fair. I mean, i mean, especially after following up the mummy, i feel like
1: and jack reacher too. Yes, back to th- back that's right. stinkers, straight up stinkers.
0: <laughs> yeah, those are some not great movies. I mean, d- just moving away from american made just for a moment because because tom cruise is probably If I had to guess, he's probably the most famous actor in Hollywood right now, right? I mean, I would say it's either him or Denzel Washington. In terms of longevity and name recognition, right? I mean, I'm sure the rock is up there and whatnot. But in terms of your actors that I would recognize, you would recognize your mom, you know, your grandparents or whatever. I feel like Tom Cruise is at the top of that list along with maybe Denzel.
1: Yes. Like him, I think Denzel, Tom Hanks. Yeah, Tom Hanks. And then to a lesser extent, like Will Smith and Brad Pitt. Okay, yeah. These guys are like... That's like the Mount Rushmore A-lister that Tom Cruise is part of. I don't think that exists anymore.
0: Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, a, a lot of actors have kind of, you know, Morgan Freeman and Clint Eastwood have started to kind of move out of the... They're, not, I mean, they're not dead, thankfully, but yeah. they've, they've moved out of the limelight and Tom Cruise is now the venerable elder statesman of Hollywood kind of thing, which is kind of weird, actually, to think of about. Of
1: course, yeah, because he's mid-50s yeah. and looks... <laughs> early 40s maybe yeah he
0: maybe it's the scientology i don't know who, maybe I don't maybe he's young
1: <laughs>
0: well okay what would you what would you say is your top let's say top 5 in terms of tom cruise movies if you had to pick some
1: okay if i can pick uh performances or movies
0: you know what uh, let's say performances cuz i do feel like cruise is the kind of person he elevates the crappy movies yeah. i feel like so let's say let's say performances cuz that's more interesting
1: okay so my personal favorite tom cruise performance is magnolia okay which is uh i think it's not a stretch to say that that is the most quote acting he's done probably in his career right like he that is genuinely moving stuff i love magnolia uh i think the quintessential tom cruise performance where you get every version of cruise is jerry Maguire. yeah okay you know you get manic cruise funny cruise cocky cruise i love all those cruises okay I'm not saying it's an Oscar-winning performance, but Top Gun is... That is, the, that is the essence of the movie star, charming Tom Cruise that we all know and love. So I'll say that's an important performance. Okay. I thought he was severely underrated and collateral. Yeah, okay. Which is... Uh, I'd love to see him work with Michael Mann again because I think he got a lot out of him. And it's potentially his best performance up until, uh, or sorry, his last best performance until American Made. Right, okay. And that's over 10 years ago. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Wow. Right? (laughs) And then for a fifth, I'll say all of his Ethan Hunt performances because (laughs) they are all different, entirely different, and could be a completely different character every time. It is like both nobody... As a character, but also like everything that Tom Cruise wants it to be, it's like a blank canvas for him to yeah. work with.
0: A little, yeah, a bit of a blank slate. He can kind of do whatever he wants, which he he has, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, he really has. I feel. I still think one of my favorite parts of any of the Mission Impossible movies was in, is in number two when he and I don't even know who the bad guy is, and they have that motorcycle was, fight on the beach. It was <laughs>
1: Doug Ray Scott, who's <laughs> right. supposed to be Wolverine. <laughs> that guy. That's
0: right. That's right. Oh my gosh, that was a. And was it uh, who directed that movie?
1: John Woo. John
0: Woo. Oh my gosh! It it's is like that was a wonderful movie. You guys, in, I, in a
1: lot of ways, it was. Yeah.
0: He he he. I, I remember Doug Ray Scott. He cuts a guy's finger off with a cigar cigar light, a uh, cigar cutter, and yeah. uh, oh man, that movie was just hilariously funny. It was bonkers. Oh my goodness. Well, I, you know what? <laughs> I, where would you put Minority Report in the pantheon of Tom Cruise movies? I,
1: it's a top five. Okay. I really, I think Minority Report is like one of the best sci fi movies of the last. Oh, I was going to say of the last fifteen years, it is fifteen years old this year.
0: That's right. Yeah, two thousand two. I, I was, I would say Minority Report is probably my favorite. Born on the Fourth of July is also pretty good, although that movie is kind of depressing when I rewatch yeah. it. <laughs>
1: it might be. Yeah, it's hard to revisit. Yeah, He's just yelling about how his penis doesn't work yes, the whole exactly. time. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and you know what? I mean, American Made, and I think I would agree with you. His performance in American Made was. Charming and he it was it was energetic and it wasn't it wasn't too much over-the-top You know we it wasn't quite manic level cruise like we saw on jerry mcguire, but it was still very we, we you loved and almost were seduced by his character on the screen.
1: That's a great way to put it You know that you're seduced
0: and I feel like maybe American made is probably one of the best movies He's done like you said since edge of tomorrow Probably and edge of tomorrow was I mean, I feel like I think it bombed at the box office It but did it was such a good movie
1: I friggin' love Edge of Tomorrow. Also, directed by Doug Lyman, Yeah. who directed American Made. So, I feel like they need to work together all the time.
0: Yeah, right? I mean, probably better for Cruz's career at this point. He, he's not getting any younger, right? He,
1: he seems to be looking like he's getting younger, yes, but yes. he's not. <laughs> this movie did something, actually, about the age thing, if I may. Sure. It brought back something that has been missing from Tom Cruise movies in a while. And it sounds weird, but Tom Cruise hasn't had sex in a movie In probably 10, 15 years. Yes, that's true. And I think the whole blow up with the couch and, you know, the whole, that whole, like, saga of Tom Cruise is that they stopped pushing him as, like, a sex symbol. And he became kind of asexual. And then it, like, took away from his ability to play normal roles. So you don't get Jerry Maguire anymore. And you don't get, you don't even get Eyes Wide Shut anymore. Because, because no one wants to watch him have sex. They're like, this guy is kind of weird. Like, I can't watch him. I don't see him that way. And this movie brought it back. And when we walked out of the theater, my wife said, "He's kind of sexy in that. And I was like, <laughs> yes! I was so excited. Nice. I was like, he's back, baby. <laughs> he's back, Like, yeah. he can play someone's father now. Or he can play, like, a guy working in an office. Like, he can go back to these things that right. he previously couldn't do because public perception was so wonky for him. That's that a great point.
0: And I, I feel like Tom Cruise has also reached this point where... Whenever you talk to someone about him, right? He, they almost seem to qualify by saying, "Oh well, whatever you may think of Tom Cruise in his in his personal life, he's a great actor." You know? <laughs> yeah, and I, and I, and I feel like every conversation I've had with literally anyone about this this actor in the past. Like five, six years, probably since the Oprah thing, right? And since yeah. all the Scientology allegations came to light, and he got he divorced uh, Katie Holmes, right? And all these all these things were happening, right? And, yeah. and I feel. I think you're right. It's almost like he his the image of him being this kind of all American actor kind of had been robbed, and now and now it's slowly starting to come back. And maybe it helps that he's in a movie called American Made, and you know what I mean. This, yeah, I don't that know could that be very conscious
1: on their part. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope he's back in this way. I'm like an unapologetic Tom Cruise freak so I, I you know I mean hey, there are, I feel like there are worse
0: actors to be uh, unapologetic freaks for uh, <laughs> yeah, you know.
1: probably yeah
0: um I, for American Made specifically I think one of the coolest things with the movie Tom Cruise aside is uh the aesthetic you know like when we start, when the movie starts right we see the logo for the studio and then they kind of it flips back to the logos they used to use in the back in the 60s or whatever right and you you get to see kind of the the, the old versus new aesthetic and the, some of the movie kind of looks like it was shot on a VHS tape. And yeah. I mean, and I mean the, that, that's kind of the story behind the movie, that the story is being told to you, the audience, via tapes that Barry Seal, the, the character that Tom Cruise plays, recorded in real life, right? So right. That, that was kind of an interesting choice by Doug Lehman to kind of visually show us the audience moving that way.
1: I didn't expect it to actually look that distinct. Because uh Doug Lyman, you know, he makes good solid movies. I'd say he's a reliable and consistent director. But I haven't seen a visual flair in this way from him. Because Edge of Tomorrow, I think, you know, it's a it's an action movie. It's a great movie. Right. Looks standard, I suppose. That's fair. That's but I think that's one, fair to say. Yeah, like yeah. I don't know if I'm being overly critical of him, but <laughs> but this yeah, this really had like, you know, uh like in traffic, you know Steven Soderbergh uses different color palettes for right. different stories. Right. This kind of felt that way. Like, when he was, like, down south, everything would be kind of tinted orangey yeah. yellow, like sunset. And uh, when he was in America, it was kind of back to, like, normal, kind of looks like Steel Town stuff, because that's where Mina looks like. So, yeah, I was I was impressed. I thought it, like, helped transport you to the time period and to the locations.
0: Yeah, and, I, and I, like you were saying, when when he's down in South America, these kind of, like, sepia tones... To make it look like, it, like this film has aged somehow, because I mean they're they're down in South America, you know they're using older style cars down there, and even older than the period that the movie was actually set in, right? And right. I'll say this: I think a standout for me of the movie was actually Domhnall Gleason. and and he he is so great in pretty much a lot of them. Every movie I've seen him in the last in the last four or five years, and he's been he's racking amazing. up these
1: hits, right? I mean, he's so good. Well, there was that year he was in like four. He was in three Best Picture nominees, and I think he died in all of them, or had his heart broken in all of yeah, them. It yeah. was, he was yeah. in Brooklyn, and he was in The Revenant, and he was in X Machina. Yeah, and then he was in, then in Star Wars. Wars. Yeah, huge year for him. <laughs> he was killing it. Not good for his characters, but but yeah, he was he was a blast in this. It was yeah. fun for him to be a, a breath of fresh air because he was so carefree. Yeah, and Tom Cruise was always kind of trying to trying to stay a step ahead but you also felt like he was struggling to keep up with everything. So it's nice to see domino Gleeson just come in and kind of have a breezy performance that you don't really he doesn't get the chance to have a lot. It's
0: true. And and I I feel
1: like I just actually
0: rewatched Star Wars The Force Awakens before I saw American Made. I was watching it with some friends and you know his his character in in Star Wars, General Hux, he's so, he's He's, he's kind of like Hitler, basically, right? Oh, he
1: has the Hitler scene. Yeah, he
0: has. that's basically who he is, right? And it was kind of nice to then see this movie a few days later and see him kind of play this, like you say, breezy, kind of carefree. Like, he clearly doesn't give two craps about Barry Seal or what yeah, he's doing. No. He just wants to make money and wants to, uh, you know, succeed, be viewed as successful by his boss. And we have that scene near the end where they kind of just start all over again, right? And uh, it, was, it was really cool. I thought that was a really fun way to show Gleason's acting range, I thought.
1: For sure, he's. I think we're going to see more from him too. Yeah, someday you should do an episode on him. Perhaps just a sole episode on Gleason. just Gleason. Like he's so he seems very young. I'm sure he's older than he looks.
0: Probably. I I don't think he's that. Like I mean, I don't think he. would like, How how old would you say you you think he is? Kind like thirty. Yeah, I mean, if I if I if he turned out to be like thirty eight or something, I wouldn't be shocked, right? Yeah. But yeah, I think for American made as a movie, I I will say the one flaw I had about this movie, or or the one, I guess major criticism, and it, it, this doesn't necessarily bring the movie down for me, but I do think it takes a lot of liberties with Barry Seal, right? It, it, with him as a human being, because he was a real guy, right? Yeah. Who, who, did, who did who did a lot of these things, and of course the movies dramatize things, and I, this, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but a lot of accounts, when I was doing some research for the movie, he apparently was not a very nice or good human being, right? And the movie kind of made him seem... Like Cruz's performance kind of made him seem like this rascal, this old, good old little rascal, right? Yeah, like, you just getting into that's that scamp Barry Seal, right? <laughs> Everyone's
1: always like rooting for him, even yeah. if he's not, if it's not in their best interest. Yeah, yeah. So this guy was not not so good.
0: Yeah, apparently not. Like he he, you know, he was he uh, he was an adulterer. He
1: you know he was not that great to his wife. Uh, you get the feeling that if with another another actor in the role that. Definitely adultery was on the table for this movie, yes. right? Like, in the script, I'm sure there were scenes in South America where he was doing stuff. But they never they never even approached him, like, doing drugs.
0: Yeah, it's true. I think
1: they show him having a beer a couple times, and that's it.
0: That, that's the thing. They really just made him seem kind of like this very—I mean, and maybe he was in real life, like a very, a very charming kind of, you know, good old boy that kind of gets into— is in the wrong place at the wrong time and tries to make the best of the situation, but— uh, and maybe it's also because this the story of American May, the story of Barry Seal, was very almost succinctly told in a in one episode of Narcos. So what right. I've heard I've never seen it Yeah and So, so, you, so you definitely Have not seen Narcos Never seen so a single frame I, of it I'm not going to spoil it for you Although I mean We know what happens To Pablo Escobar in real life But yeah. uh, but uh, in, in the beginning Of one of those In the beginning of season one I think it was When it happens right And we learned a little bit About Barry Seal And it, it certainly doesn't go As in depth to his character I mean it was one Like 45 minute episode So not as much a story Devoted to this one character As American Made does right Because Narcos is not about Barry It's about Pablo Escobar right Of course but, at the same time, it was kind of interesting to see basically all the major beats of Barry's character boil down to this one episode of a TV show that I had watched like a few years ago. Did you and remember it well? I, I didn't remember, I think, every single piece, but I do remember after the movie was done, I went over uh, to, to my girlfriend's house, and we kind of just, we were watching Narcos, and she had not seen Narcos, and we just, we, we kind of ended up re-watching just by pure happenstance the episode that with Barry, and it was interesting to see how similar but yet, different it was to the movie.
1: What was similar about it?
0: I would say the same the same things in how because it, it focused on the story from Pablo's side, right? So we get to, we get to see more of how he came to hire Barry and the whole runway thing, right? With the the shortened runway that's and, in the show. Like they talk about it a little bit. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. And, okay. Uh, cool. And you know, the struggles that Pablo had kind of initially getting his product moved and making money and stuff. And then it kind of fast forwards because those first few episodes of Narcos are all about Pablo setting up his empire. Then the latter half of season one is all about him kind of like reaping the benefits. So they kind of gloss over like once Barry leaves, it's kind of like, okay, Barry works for Pablo now. And then that's, that's the end of it. Right. Right. But it was still kind of interesting to see, uh, I guess that part of the story from Pablo's perspective, because we only get to see him and the rest of the drug cartel, the Medellin cartel, and for this movie, and we see them occasionally, but not all that much, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's very like peppered throughout.
0: Yeah, and I would say I would say this movie was probably a vehicle, like you can, we kind of alluded to this at the beginning, but more of a vehicle for Tom Cruise, right? Like more more than anything, that's what it seemed to me.
1: Yeah, to let him charm us for two hours or yeah. whatever it was. Yeah. It and it certainly felt like it was just framed for him to do what he wanted to do.
0: And I mean, I don't I don't think that's a bad thing, right? I mean, I welcome
1: it with open <laughs> arms. But yeah, I think because critically it was very well received. Mm. And I think people kind of called it a return to form for him, at least, you know, for the parts that we were talking about. You know, charming, and everyone's like, "Oh, you know Tom Cruise is just good good old boy, and he's got that hair, and you know like yeah, it's, yeah. it's just Tom Cruise being Tom Cruise, but the one that we remembered that we loved before, not the weird kind of one that we've been uncomfortable with for the last ten years or so
0: yeah it's a uh, it's a it was a nice sight to see because." As much as I like to bash Tom Cruise's crappy movies, like, I, I'm not a huge fan of Oblivion. I, feel I won't like, hear it. You know? I, no, I don't want to hear any of this.
1: <laughs> yeah, Oblivion was very, like, it was I, mediocre That at movie best.
0: Was, was mediocre because of Tom Cruise. If, it, if he was not, meaning to say, if he was not in that movie, it would have been outright bad.
1: I will agree with that.
0: <laughs> That's the kind of thing. Like, I think he elevates crappy movies to good, and he makes good movies great. Yeah. I mean, people always talk about Tropic Thunder and his his very brief but awesome hel- and hilarious epi- uh, appearance in that movie.
1: Yeah, and how many minutes of screen time does he have in that? Maybe like eight. Yeah, right. But people remember it. He was up for a Golden Globe for that. <laughs> I th- yeah, that was ridiculous. He was. Yeah, yeah,
0: he was. And and that was I think uh, Robert Downey Jr. was nominated for an Oscar for that movie. I think
1: he was. Can you <laughs> imagine now? That would not fly.
0: No, absolutely not. La- my last question for you before we finish up. Now that Tom Cruise, let's say Tom Cruise is back, right? Let's say he's back in, in the, in the Cinesphere. We can, and yeah. if you could cast him for any like major role or franchise or anything. What movie, franchise, single film, historical role, anything you could think of, what would you put him in for a movie that you wanted to see starring Mr. Tom Cruise?
1: Oh man, this is my dream come true. What would I put him in? I would, can I pick someone he could work with? Sure. Yeah. He worked well with Martin Scorsese. No, I don't want to see that. I want to see him work with Michael Mann again. Okay. Michael Mann has made a couple, a couple odd movies lately. Yeah. I don't know if you saw Black Hat. I did not. It is something to behold. It is <laughs> maybe truly terrible. Okay. And then Miami Vice is also quite divisive. I would give it a ten out of ten. I love okay. Miami, Vice. Miami Vice. Okay. But there's something distinct about that like style of working like he Michael Mann knows what he wants right when he worked with Tom Cruise he got a very focused performance I think that goes you know that goes for every Tom Cruise performance his focus Yep. and if you hear interviews it's that's all he talks about I would like to see him channel that to a more adult a more mature type role I would like to see Tom Cruise maybe play a father okay. uh, you know down on his luck looking to not down on his luck, Barry Seal way, but right. I mean, like, this guy is truly, like, hitting rock bottom somehow with not any means. I want to see Tom Cruise have to, like, struggle in a movie again. That's and fair. Okay. That's what he does for the second half of Collateral, I'd say. Yes. Yeah. Because he, he finally realizes who he's dealing with and it it becomes like a, you no, know, the table's turn sort of. And I, I like seeing him in those, in those ways because that's also Jerry Maguire, right? True. Yeah. The, the whole thing of Jerry Maguire is a build up and I want to see him do that again because I like seeing him like work in movies I like seeing him accomplish things in movies
0: I think, it's a, I think that's a great point I think speaking of Jerry Maguire our, our friend Vic he had mentioned to me I should have named the podcast Show Me The Money and then I could have just re- I, I could have just used that drop over and over again I'm, I think I'm going to have to do that at some point
1: you might anyways, have to do but, that but <laughs> a rebrand
0: <laughs> yeah we might I, we'll, we'll see we'll, we'll, we'll go past episode 10 and we'll see what comes but, okay cool I think that's a good point about Tom Cruise. I think that's a that's a something he hasn't really done at least in a while, right? And I would love to see him kind of and I'm not sure he really needs to expand his range, but I would love to see him do more things now that he's kind of back so to speak.
1: Yeah. Okay, how about I'll put it this way. I want to see him in a movie where he never where there's never a gun in frame ever. I would love to see that. That'd be really that would be
0: quite impressive honestly considering now, that, now that I'm thinking ages. about it I can't think of a, the last movie I've seen with Tom Cruise that did not have some kind of gun or weapon in it
1: even I think even like like Magnolia has guns yeah, in it does, and yeah. <laughs> not in his scenes but still, still I just yeah. feel like it's unavoidable and he works very well with those with no without without guns I mean yes, so yeah, He works well right. in those movies where he doesn't have to shoot things but it's been like 20 years of this let's see him go back to doing it without it Awesome well
0: Here's hoping some movies come out with uh, Tom Cruise without guns. Oh, we'll fingers be there. crossed. We'll be there front and center to see them, I'm sure. Mark, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I really like having you on. We'll have to, we were talking before the show about Geostorm. Maybe you'll have to come
1: back and we can talk about some Geostorm. I am so excited for Geostorm. Okay, it excellent. looks insane.
0: I'm, I'm really, Jared Butler as a scientist, like what more, what more do I want? He doesn't even have to act. Yeah. You know,
1: perfectly suited to him.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you again, Mark. We'll definitely talk Geostorm then. And uh, thanks again. Thanks a lot. That's it for movie reviews this episode. Thank you again to Mark Goujon of the Rose to Rose podcast. It was a lot of fun having him in here. So I'm going to try and line up another guest for next week. We're going to try for a movie critic here in Toronto, you know, pick their brain a little on the ideas behind what it takes to properly critique a film that's usually viewed as, you know, subjective art and what it takes to express those thoughts in a coherent manner that you know your average audience member like myself or someone else would be able to read and understand and be able to digest before they go see a movie, right? So stay tuned for that. Otherwise, that's it for me this week. As we give a last listen to the late Downey of the Canadian band, The Tragically Hip, thank you for listening to episode 9 of Houston We Have a Podcast. Good night.
1: I left your house this morning a quarter of a nine Could have been the Willie Nelson